Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Awaza. If you haven't already done so, use the link in the show notes and check out what this great company has to offer. From top-of-the-line filtration systems like the BioMaster Canister Filter and BioPlus Internal Filter to unique and eye-catching aquariums from their BioOrb line, Awaza is sure to have something for every aquarist. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is November 24th. Sunday, November 24th, 2019, we are in Shanghai, China. This is Randy Reed, host of the Aquarius Podcast, and the first ever quad? Are you quad at this point? I think so. I think you're quad. Or was last time try? I don't know. It's late. Uh, Corey McElroy, the one and only Mr. Aquarium Co-op. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me back again. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to have you on, Corey. You know, we both just happened to be in Shanghai, China, and we saw each other and said, hey, what an odd coincidence. We should, we should sync up and, you know, maybe talk business and, uh, and do a little podcast episode. So here we are. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. Uh, how is, uh, how's Shanghai been for you? Been for you? Okay, so, so those that don't know, we traveled here together for business for Aquarium Co-op. Uh, primary reason being SIPS, the China, China International Pet Show, which I believe I've been telling everybody it's the largest like pet exposition in the world. Do we feel like that's a fair statement? Yes, I, I've, I don't know of one larger. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist somewhere, but at this point, I've been to so many shows, people would say, oh, you gotta go to this one, mm-hmm. and this is the one. Sips for short, yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it, if not the largest, like, top two or three, maybe the audience can give us some leeway on that one, so. I don't even think there's any leeway needed. Oh. I, would, I would challenge oh. someone, show me a bigger fish show in the world bigger pet show with a bigger fish show attached to it. Yeah, I don't care about the other pets. I care about fish. <laughs> Which is, I mean, if we we're going to jump straight into it, we ended up not actually going and looking at, not that we're going there for business, but we're both dog owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have other pets, and uh, we didn't even go into the other exposition halls. And, and, and I think hall is actually an understatement. Uh, so this exposition center where, the, where SIPS was held was uh, four massive stadium-sized buildings put together in like a clover leaf pattern mm-hmm. and the aquatics was dedicated to just one of those mm-hmm. mini stadium cities so we didn't even get a chance to to really go and explore the dog and cat and see you know what kind of new products are out there because there was just so much to look at uh, on the aquatic side of things yeah uh, I would say that think of a stadium and then it's like two of those stacked on top of each other and the floor wherever the game's played that's how big they are mm-hmm <coughs> so what do you think? This is SIPS number two for you. Second year in a row. First year it was in Guangzhou. This year it's in Shanghai. Um, what what were your thoughts? Awkward pause as I am choking. Well, don't, don't screw the lid back on. Leave it off. All right. There you go. Choking. Well, part of it is. <laughs> so there is quite a bit. I'm like I'm losing my voice all of a sudden. <coughs> don't, don't be nervous. You've been on the podcast like ten times Ooh, now. It's stressful. <laughs> But no, there is a lot of smog, so it actually takes a toll after a while. But this show was not nearly as cool as Guangzhou, mostly because it's my second show. A lot of the displays I've already seen, and I think a lot of people get convention fatigue. If you've gone to one aquatic experience, you go the next year, you're like, it's a lot of the same. Same with Aquashella and that kind of stuff. And here you travel 12 hours on a plane to get here, and you see a lot of the same stuff. And there's a few new things, but that's why you go. You're purely going to see what is new and what could we maybe 
bring into the United States? Could we finally get time with a vendor? A lot of times, like the booth might be really busy and you had no chance to get there. Um, and for me, it was hoping that the markets were gonna be large outside of it as well to do filming. And so all of that comes together. And so far, you know, we've accomplished our goals of finding some new suppliers, whether we establish connections on, you know, good terms with them, that's a different thing. Having dinners with some suppliers and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Just culturing relationships, running into people that you only run into internationally, like some aquascapers and stuff that... Um, Fish farm owners from Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stuff that you only see at these other international conventions or, you know, even in more of a local time like the only time I meet up and talk with like abuseplants.com is when I'm in another country and we're both sourcing stuff so even though we're competitors you kind of sit there and you're both Americans and you're talking about where's a good place to eat what'd you find you know and you're just you know you're kind of because you're out of your element it's like you guys bond together as opposed to if we're at home we're competitors outside you're like oh yeah it's, it's us versus the world we forget that there is so many other people all vying for the same dollar and that kind of stuff so it's, you know, you come for all the new opportunities and I think, you know, we've been here for what, maybe five days now and you really learn how hard it is to be away from business and just the family and all that kind of stuff, knowing what you have to do when you get back and uh, the time difference, but, you know, it's, it's a good time and I don't want to spoil some of the new products and stuff, but we're really working on some new stuff to bring in and it was fun to find brand new stuff. Yeah, I would, I would say for people to to throw it out there, what we're looking at and uh, the the communications that we're going to have in the coming weeks and months, um, some basic stuff, mm-hmm. some kind of uh, some basic items, but then other items that um, superficially seem basic yet hopefully are, and I hope this isn't too strong of a word, but revolutionary. Um, something that's you know really makes it so that people can be more efficient. Yeah, like the Wi-Fi um, can opener. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, but like <clears throat> for an example of that, like it, that's kind of a joke, right? But so we were looking at air pumps as one of these booths, right? We were just like looking at an air pump and then they were like, oh, you got to see the new thing. And they hand it to me and I'm like, okay, yeah, it's kind of this crazy, like maybe battery powered air pump. Okay. And no, it turns out it's a vacuum and it sucks out the air from your wine bottle. Oh yeah. That, you that, know, that and I was product, like, yeah. ah, what is this even doing at the show? Like this is completely random, but you know, just because they're making air pumps doesn't mean they're not making other types of widgets, and mm-hmm. you know they're trying to sell them at all costs. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I mean I'm I'm pretty excited. My my take from my takeaway or my feedback on on this show is obviously this is my first one. This is my first time uh, being in Asia, being in China, being at a global pet show like this. So you know we had gone to um, the Global Pet Expo in Orlando, which even though it's got global in the title. It is not. It doesn't hold a candle. Like that's mm. that's kind of like the county fair, and this is like this is like the big dance. This is the world's fair. Um, so the the scale of it is just you know it's just mind blowing. And um, you know to hear you talk about the sips when it's in Guangzhou and how um, it's it's an even larger and more impressive uh, than this venue. Even from a floor footprint, it was 33% bigger for aquatics. Which is insane. Which is insane because this was... hard to imagine that, right? Now that you've been here, you'd be like, another third bigger. We spent an entire day just going through the aquatics um, and then, you know, coming back a second day to actually spend more time to talk to vendors and then spending a lot of time... So there's the vendors aspect and then there's the competitions. Mm -hmm. There was shrimp, um, live bears beta competition, uh, flower horn, goldfish, and arowana, and we didn't even get to film or really see. Did, 
discus. There you go. Mm-hmm. Completely forgot about that. One of the, the actually, and that's odd because the competition that I I most enjoyed, uh, I forgot. I forgot about. But yeah, I mean, there's just so much going on. And I mean, this was a fantastic opportunity for me, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it from the hobbyist perspective, but also uh, the seeing all the different products and the exciting prospect of cultivating these business relationships uh, to bring really great products that um, I think people are going to be, you know, very happy to see Aquarium Co-op offer. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy looking at products, and my favorite thing is seeing if I can get a vendor to build me something where it's like, I love what you've done there and I love what you've done over there. We need to put that together now. Like, I don't like that part. I don't like this part. And so that all goes down weeks and weeks to come through email to see if, can our molds do that? Can our engineering part department make that happen versus like, it's great, but it costs too much. Yeah, I would, I would say just to, to be transparent with the listeners, like for me personally, this uh, so the owner of this is a South Korean gentleman named Sangmin, who mm. is the owner, but he's also like a, a electrical engineer for another company. And this guy, uh, I've, I've interacted with him quite a bit uh, through email over you know the year that I've been with Aquarium Co-op, uh, getting a chance to talk with him and his wife in the booth. And I feel like he is such a hardcore nerd hobbyist in mm-hmm. this in this space and the fact that he has the engineering chops and what he designs is of incredible quality there will be a new uh product that i i feel like you know we'll, we'll probably We've got like two or three new products we're testing yeah. plus one that he hasn't even gotten to us which i think is a winner but we'll probably bring on one to two new products from them just because they've been designed really well there's a need for them mm-hmm. and you know it's cool yeah that, you know that you like the quality that's the thing is like we don't bring everything on that they make, but the quality is always there. I've never once questioned, is it good enough quality-wise? Mm-hmm. It's all, will Americans want to buy it? Yeah. I mean, we talked about suction cups for like 10 minutes, and it's, you know, your suction cups are amazing. He's like, yeah, they're, they're expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, these are suction cups that don't harden. They don't get brittle in your tank and, and lose their ability to adhere to the, tank, to the tank. And that just speaks to, you know, his passion and his desire to produce a quality product that aquarists are going to want. Um, and I really hope that, you know, this relationship, I think we're only a year in, and I think that we've made tremendous progress with him. I would have to say that, you know, we have probably one of the strongest customer to vendor relationships that he has in his portfolio. Mm-hmm. And I hope in the coming years that we can really influence and give him our, you know, high level designs of what we think would be amazing in an aquarium. And he's able to execute on that and produce a product that is of exceptional quality and something that people will be like, oh man, good job on that one. That thing was amazing. I didn't even know I needed that, but mm-hmm. I need it and it's great quality. Yeah, right now we focus on taking products that are worldwide products and bringing them to America. Someday it would be nice to have something made purely for America. Mm-hmm. Not this did well <clears throat> in this market and now we want to port it over. We want to start with this concept would do well and then maybe the rest of the world would bring it on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it takes a lot. There's not a lot of innovating going on in America and that in the aquatics industry. Like, even though companies all the time are bringing out new products, when you go to these international shows, you realize none of them are originating in America. You know, they're all originating from other people working on that. And then as American companies typically we come in and we go, oh, we'd love to bring that to America Mm -hmm. and put our name on it and do all those types of things. And I'm not gonna say nothing's ever been invented, but you, you start seeing, you're like, oh my gosh, that's, unlabeled this brand that's unlabeled yeah. this brand and anyone could buy that well one of the one of the newest power filters that's on the market that's not i mean it's new in that they wrote new on the box and they mm-hmm. launched it recently 
it's not really new. They just kind of remarketed it, added some extra plastic, changed some colors here and there, and you know that's that's like one of the exciting things of the year that we're supposed to be, you know, oh my goodness, we've got this mm-hmm. new product, it's amazing, and I think I, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's not even really new. Like they made they made some improvements that should have been made couple years ago at the very least and they're just now getting around to it um so yeah to to your point i mean hopefully in the future we are able to bring something that is truly new and unique and and one of these is the application of it and the form and function of it will be new that people didn't know could be a thing mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean that's uh yeah, definitely exciting. And then, and then having the competition aspect on top of it, you know, you could have some some vendor fatigue. You go down a row and you you see a hundred different vendors and different booths, and you know, you collect brochures, which I think, I think I, I probably have about fifty pounds worth of uh, brochures mm-hmm. of product. But then you you can kind of take a little bit of a break and go and look at some of the competitions and and look at the uh, what the aquascapers are doing. Which unfortunately it was it's almost a madhouse. Like while the aquascapers were still working, they were allowing the public to kind of get in there and you know uh, take pictures and you know, not necessarily interact. But I, I feel like if I was aquascaping, I'd want a little bit more elbow room than have. You'd almost want to do it like before hours or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and just kind of have the finished product or. Maybe some type of like a video lapse of the various people putting their their aquascapes mm-hmm. together in a, in a timely lapse manner. But yeah, having the competitions there, uh, really really cool. And unfortunately, nobody from the U.S. representing the U.S. was in the live competition portion for aquascaping. Yeah. So hopefully, um, you know, one of you aquascapers, the uh, aquascapers collective or something like that, one of you guys, you fly out to uh, to Sips next year and compete. And uh, represent the USA. I put Corey Hopkins' name in the in the ring. Oh, there That's you go, I, Corey I, Hopkins. Yeah. If you listen, you're being uh, your, your name is now in the ring. It's mm-hmm. in the hat. That's who I suggested. But you know, the other thing with vendors, you know, if you've never been to a show like this, you're probably thinking like, you're just seeing all the coolest equipment on the planet, and that we are. But also realize like, oh, we spent time in a booth that all they do is plastic spoons for like foods <laughs> and stuff. Like, so all the you know, there might be a vendor, and all they do is make plastic packages to put fish food in or they only do things to close bags for shipping fish like there's the whole industry any part you would use from it is there and when you design a product you might find the perfect product at one booth and then go well how are we going to package it how are we going to get it here how are we going to you know so we like right right now i fell in love with some of the frozen foods and i'm like logistically how do we even get that back to the united states what does that look like in frozen cargo containers and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff you start it's a whole new world of like oh i don't even know how to broach that yet but we've seen some very cool products that we want to bring over and some of it is like that i'm not even sure like money can buy it but how do we get it there mm-hmm. and how do we get it through like on a food fda and all that kind of stuff it's a whole new world on lots of things yeah and one other one other thing that we're doing too that is the harder route, but the better route is that you know sourcing products. Um, many many vendors have many many products under their under their um, influence or that they produce, but not everything that they make is their specialty. Mm-hmm. And so, really taking the extra time and effort to find 
you know, of these hundreds and hundreds of vendors taking the time, looking through their products, getting hands on it, um, and then further opening the dialogue, getting numerous samples, making sure we test it, and that we take the best from company A. We take the best from company B, we take the best from company C, and we continue to do that, um, even though that's less efficient overall, it's a little bit more costly than if we just sourced everything from one company. That would be the easier route, that would be the cheaper route, but that wouldn't be doing the hobby the best, and that wouldn't be doing the service to our customers of ensuring that, yep, we got the best widget A from this guy, we got the best widget B from this gal, and so on and so forth. We literally spent like four hours just analyzing airline tubers. <laughs> like, no joke. Like, we really we have so many samples <laughs> and so many... We want to make sure, like, our tubing that we did launch, it came kinked. We want to make sure it could never be kinked again. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure what colors are available, what thicknesses are available, what... Is it silicone? Isn't it? How much silicone tubing is in there? There's so many variables when you get to a factory and they're like, we could literally do anything. Mm -hmm. and it's like, well, what, what, what do you suggest slash what's working well in the markets and what's going to hold up and what's going to, you know. And part of it is you have to think about, again, logistics of what if it hits 150 degrees in a cargo container during the middle of the summer coming over on a boat? Does mm -hmm. that change plastic? Yeah. Does that do stuff? Well, and some of, some of the airline tubing that they were displaying in the booth was kinked. Mm -hmm. And so that just to me says that, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of resellers out there that are okay with that. And that, you know, they're not thinking so much about the customer perception, the customer interaction with this product, where for us, you know, the, what we ended up selling didn't match what the supplier told us they were going to do, what we directed them to do. It mm -hmm. wasn't up to our standards. And we did the best that we could to make it right by basically offering it like 75% off or some crazy amount for this crazy good airline tubing that was kinked but was perfectly fine. And knowing, though, that other companies out there would just be like, oh, yeah, that's our airline tubing. Cool. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. Yeah, I mean, we upped with that specific product. We upped the... You know, instead of getting 20 feet, you got 25 feet, and then the price was a good price, and then we ended up slashing the price in half because it was kinked. And there's, we get emails all the time, just bring in more kink tubing, I'll buy it. <laughs> you know, because like obviously the price to that ratio is great, but we don't want to be known as like, oh, Aquarian no, Cloth, the best crappy tubi tubing out there. Yeah, like, how about yeah. we just know, oh, they have the best tubing? Yeah. Like, we, we definitely want to have, we want to have a, a, a tremendous value to what we offer. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's any, like, we don't want to be a discount brand. Like, we don't want right. to offer discount. We will have discounts on products during sales and various times, but we, we want people to have the confidence that they're getting stuff that Randy and Corey would run in their fish room, mm -hmm. right? Like, I, I've talked on a couple of previous podcasts that I, my focus in my fish room is going to be on discus. Like, I want to have discus. That's not a cheap fish, right? Like, mm -hmm. I want good things in my fish room that are operating. I'm, I want good foods that I'm feeding them. So, extreme krill flake immediately comes to mind. Like, I'm not feeding them bargain bin food. Like, I'm trying to feed them the best that I can because I want to produce, I want to breed and have quality fish. And the same thing goes with whether it's airline tubing or, um, you know, you name the product. Like anything that interacts with my water with my in my fish room, I want it to be good. Mm -hmm. So and I think you feel the same way. Yeah, I, you know, for me <clears throat> as a hobbyist, I never want the kink tubing because a lot of times in my projects, I'll have a really long run of tubing. Let's say I need to run it out the door to a pond. Maybe I need to do these things and I don't want it when it's kinked it has that memory in it and I don't want to come out to dead fish because oh it like someone kicked the tubing and it closed it off because it has that memory even though I laid it flat and I thought okay it'll be okay and I just don't want that to happen to anyone else knowing that 
we're not trying to make this something crazy. It's like you can just buy tubing without a kink, though. Let's mm -hmm. just do that. And so even still, we're looking at packaging of how could we further do that? Maybe we need to sell it like on a real like fishing line or something like how do we, you know, and then even there, there's like if you've ever bought vinyl tubing from Home Depot, the last of the tubing on the roll has that memory yeah. kink or not kink to it, but curve to it. Mm -hmm. And so a hard curve, very, very hard in and on in on itself. And curve. that matters how much yeah. silicone versus not silicone. And there's all these properties that as a hobbyist, we probably don't care. We just know I like that one or I don't. And you keep buying the same product. So we end up spending way too much time nerding out and getting down to how much of each plastic is going to be in this and what are the properties and what is it going to do? Is it going to feel slimy? Is it going to get brittle like a Lee's tubing after time where it's like, oh, you almost have to, like I took it off the airstone, now I have to cut it to put it back on. Mm -hmm. There's all these different properties based on the plastic and or the rubber, the silicone. And we want to make sure that we have one that we believe is the best and that we want to use. Like I never want to be like, here's the one we sell. But I personally, I use this one, you know, type of deal. It's like, oh, I use this one. And if you, I think everyone at home would know, if you're working with a product and you could do anything you want, clearly you would push it towards, let's make it the best that I would want to use as opposed to something else. I mean, I guess there's some people that might be like, I want to push it to as much money as I could make. But I, like there's, I feel like there's almost too much work that goes in for what we get back like on an airline tubing. Like if we're not making it better, then... Like, no one's getting rich off airline tubing to begin with, so we're purely just trying to solve some of the problems that are already there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it's just... I, I like to think that what we're trying to do is bring aquatics up to speed with, you know, dog and cat. Mm -hmm. So, in, in the sense of food, you know, be a little bit more ingredient conscious. Um, look to see what you... You know, people, people are very into what they're feeding their dogs and cats to the point where now it's like the... The El Natural, you know, let's boil some, uh, let's boil some chicken breast and some and some vegetables and feed that to my dog. You know, like people are very, very in tune with what they feed their. It's essentially where my dogs are. I mean, we don't actually boil it ourselves, but it's very close to human yeah. grade food. Not that human grade food is the best. It's just the food we buy, and they seem to do best on from testing, not just our bias, but you know, skin issues and things like that. It, it, you know, it's, luckily we have small dogs. We can afford this very it, it's not that expensive because i think to feed our dogs it costs about five dollars a day which is you know not that expensive it's 150 dollars a month which could be a very big expense but for having three you know animals like that i think that's totally within reason and i think with our aquarium same way like if i spent a hundred dollars feeding all of my aquariums i think that's probably more than i spend right now but it would be totally worth it for the amount of aquariums i run in my studio and so i think Right now, we don't even have the option to go, if I wanted to invest $100, because I think Frozen wouldn't even set me back that much. Live foods, maybe, if I was always flying worms and stuff in, but I would need more of a variety. And I think I think the ultimate is just higher and higher qualities of freeze-dried and formulated foods. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I always wonder, like, why isn't there very, very high-end uh, arowana food and that kind of stuff? Whereas, like in the koi world, I have fed my koi bags of koi food. They're, you know, like 40-pound bags, but they were $300. Wow. You know, so that exists, at least in that world. But I don't feel like, oh, there's my $80 guppy food or anything mm -hmm. like that. Like, there's just, because it's a smaller animal, if you will, it's like, ah, I just, you know, you just put some food in there. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't allow someone like me that really does love goldfish, really does love guppies, to really go all the way down that rabbit hole instead of it's like, well, it gets to here. That's as good as it gets, you know. Well, I, I think it's the... 
does it matter and is there a difference? And I think with with the dog and cat food, um, we have learned that it does matter and that there mm-hmm. that there is a difference. And I think that um, some of what we're doing and other people out there, it's it, it there is a difference in food and it does matter to an extent, depending on you know depending on what you're trying to do. Um, and so you know again, elevating the care of your fish in your home to be as close as we can get to how you view your dog and cat. Well, I know, like, I, I with our dog and cat, my wife and I discuss, you know, we have a basically a 15-year-old <clears throat> rescue chihuahua that is getting very old, blind in both eyes. Shout out, Sassy. That's right, Sassy the Destroyer. <laughs> and, you know, so we're really watching her to make sure she's doing okay. And so we talk about, you know, was her stool correct and that kind of stuff. Do we need to modify anything we're feeding to, you know, she's losing weight because she's just really old and we keep consulting with a vet and they're like you're doing everything right you're feeding the right you know fats and that kind of stuff and trying to do that but I don't think most home hobbyists like I do but most are looking like well what is the feces like coming out of this fish they're like yeah the fish went poop but was it white was it the color of the food you're feeding was it solid where it was it like like with a new life spectrum for instance that food I never enjoyed because when the fish went to the bathroom it was almost like a dusting went on. It was a different type of feces coming out. Um, and that led to a lot of fine particles in the water, which led to less clear water, where I'd much rather have it be solid and picked up by a filter or um, you know, kind of broken down by a snail or something like that. And so I don't think the average hobbyist is focusing on that kind of stuff. And I think we could be, and if we were, we'd start seeing like, oh, it does make sense to feed this or feed that. And oh, it's, you know, the feces is green, so I can see that the spirulina brine shrimp I fed has now passed through, and now I can feed a different food. And that's the way we managed species at the store I used to work at um, with a lot of African cichlids that are known to kind of get Malawi bloat and that kind of stuff. The goal would kind of be feed them something red, then feed them something green so that you could make sure, like, oh, today they should be pooping green, they are. Oh, today they should be pooping red, they are making sure they're passing through and not needing to hold back food. And that's how we were able to feed something like Trophius, very high protein diets where typically people would say, just only feed it the spirulina. So it's like only the veggies. And it's like, well, sure, if you only ever eat insane amounts of fiber, you're going to have loose stool, but that's not the best diet either, right? The goal would be, oh, if I eat the right combination of foods, I pass everything correctly. And that's what we'd be shooting for for fish. And I think... You know, part of it is, like, African cichlids didn't really exist, right, till like, early or maybe late 70s. And Andy, so, Andy and his brother, Rick. Right. And so we've only got about 40 years of this as a pet. And of that, maybe the first 20 was, like, here's just a new one. And maybe the last 20, maybe, maybe from, like, 98 till now or something, we might really be starting to focus in on, like, well, what should they be eating? What is best practices? Because... You know, in year five, no one had ever kept a trophies before. And so best practices don't exist when no one's ever done it yet. And mm-hmm. so as time goes along, we get these, I think this is the best way. Now, we developed that with discus and stuff where it's like, okay, you've got Hans discus, you've got Stenkar discus, you've got, you know, Malaysian discus, and you've got all these ways, and they're all successful in the way what they feed and how they do it. But as time goes on, we can go, oh, this actually leads to this problem or that actually leads to that problem. And so we're very immature in fish keeping and when it comes to diets Mm -hmm. and i think you know i think 20 or 30 years from now we'll be way more advanced than where we were we'll know 
How many days protein should they be eating? How many days should they not be? Should they be fasting? Shouldn't they? We'll have more studies done. We'll have, you know, we know, we, we learn everything we know basically from food fish, you know, stuff that humans are going to consume. And it's not a good answer to translate to hobbyists when it's like, oh, just feed 2% of their body weight every day. Like most of us will never know how much a neon tetra weighs. Do you see studies, do you see a sufficient number of studies coming out recently on wild fish diet because I, I feel like what I'm seeing is more of a shift towards just habitat um, habitat destruction population studies uh, things of that nature I feel like when I do my Google Scholar searches I'm not seeing it, it seems like the academic in the field research is more on yep rainforest is burning down yep gold mining yep this 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 the, you know we're, we're seeing less populations mm-hmm. of these various species as opposed to oh yeah that there's where that species happens to be now let's spend some time and seriously look into what are the natural things that they're eating in their own environment um you know how often are they eating like those kinds of things yeah i think because it's a bigger threat so like let's say we spend the next year and we figure out exactly what autosynclus can eat because we've there's been studies on what they find in their gut and stuff to help us in the trade we could spend all of that time, but if we know in a year, if we don't do anything, they'll be extinct. Like, that's a mm-hmm. waste, right? Like, oh, we, we figured it out. Arowanas love this. By the way, there's not one left on the earth. Yeah. Like, that's, so I think the people that have the time to be doing these studies and the will to do it see that, like, well, it's clearly better to maybe save this habitat than it is to figure out what they're eating. You yeah. know, and, and some of the studies go hand in hand, right? Like, oh, we found out they're eating this. By harvesting that, they're not getting it anymore. Like they can do that, but I don't think right now the the importance is on what are they eating at home. It's mostly like let's try and keep them from going extinct. And I think that falls back onto hobbyist level, you know, stuff where people I you know, I've I used to always bring up this experiment, but there was a guy that would culture algae on tiles and then he would run experiments to see which shrimp could actually clean them the fastest. Mm. And we're a mono's the best versus this other type of shrimp and all of that kind of stuff. But that was a hobbyist doing that. And because no other commercial venture really needs to know that answer. Like no one's making money based on if this cherry shrimp versus this Sulawasi shrimp versus a Samano shrimp versus a ghost shrimp, which is the best algae eater doesn't really matter. And so, you know, with people's free time and academia, we're usually trying to save something. And if, if finding out what fish eat, saves them that will happen you know and a lot of times it's a i think zoos that are figuring that stuff out because they they've got people on staff and it's their goal to feed all of the animals or or zoo or an aquarium feed all the animals to the best of their ability and technology changes all the time and they have budgets and they can run experiments and they have labs to do this stuff and as they figure things out um, it can translate or transcend down to us that being said a lot of times we find that uh, as hobbyists, we can advance a lot faster. We might not have the training, but we can crowdsource that over hundreds of thousands of people instead of like Larry, Bob, and Jake have been working on it for 12 years and they haven't figured it out. You know, it's three people. Yeah, and I think we may not remember all the steps exactly, but I would have to assume that most people listening to this can probably close their eyes and think back to seventh grade science and remember the scientific method right formulate a hypothesis in your fish room if you happen to you know or you or across your tanks um you know what what is a question that you might have a scientific question and carry out the scientific method and see if you can come to some type of a conclusion Mm -hmm. and share that 
Um, you know, I, I don't know what the mechanism would be. Maybe they could just use that kind of standard scientific template, share it with a, you know, a specific Facebook group that, uh, you know, is, is erected for this purpose, um, as opposed to just a general aquarium support group where you might get flamed because, you know, somebody didn't I think take YouTube is the perfect thing. Make a video about it. Have a preamble of like, you know, here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. This might seem crazy to you. And if the right people see that study, it'll resonate with them. They'll share it with other people that think like them. They might run a study. And things that seem crazy come out in years of like, oh, that person wasn't crazy. They were five years ahead of their time. Yeah, but the only concern I would have with YouTube for somebody like that is if you're you know, somebody that doesn't want to be in front of the camera, you don't want to take that extra step, but you can fill out a very simple Word doc and kind of you know, detail out what you've done and put that attachment on a forum thread or something like that for, for other people to something will ever get seen. Well, I mean, YouTube would be tough too. There's Tell a lot of things I've read on Facebook. You're like, oh, I would totally share that, except it's gone into the oblivion. Mm. There's no way to go back and get it. That's the hardest part about Facebook and the social media platforms is without a forum or without something where something sticks around, you can have the best thing in the world that literally disappears. YouTube, at least, if you can remember, like I find, I found a lot of stuff about aquaponics and the way they're setting up systems that I can like think about the video and go, what else did I see? Okay, maybe I can Google that term or YouTube that term and okay, it was on page four, found it, right? But mm-hmm. in YouTube or in Facebook, that will never happen. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I think it was in this group. You're just, you're never gonna find it again. Do they save files in groups? You can technically save a file, but part of the problem is when I say it's never gonna be found is. Most people listening to this have never clicked on the file section in a group ever. Yeah. You know, and that's like you can't get people to read the rules, let alone like, oh, by the way, we have a library over here. Did you check it out? Well, the rules are meant to be broken. So, what, yeah. what would the point of that be? And that's the thing is if you, because I, I feel like if you do a bunch of work and you actually like whether you prove it right or wrong on your method, you could save someone a lot of time or reaffirm something they're thinking, and they might take it to the next step. And I think that's how we're going to crowdsource some of these medicines and stuff like that. Like. Levamisol and flubendazole. Levamisol is probably the greatest example of that we have in our hobby lifetime. So in the last 20 years, that is purely crowdsourcing. Hobbyists trying different levels of levamisol going, this work didn't kill it, and I think it cured it. And we all keep passing that information around. And now, like I always recommend, okay, Greg Sage has it for sale, and he's got it listed there, and I know it basically works. But we still don't know, could we use half as much? Should we be using twice as much? Mm-hmm. It's like, this works, but it's not optimized yet. And, But I think that's a good example of how the hobby has kind of done that based on trial and error. And I think there's a lot of ambiguity there still of like, well, at that level, will it hurt snails or shrimp? Like, you can cure your fish, and then like two weeks later, your snails die, and you're like, oof, too much. Yeah. you know. And then it's all, you can read some of them still, and it's like, well, I recommend letting it sit for three days, then change water. The other one says, dose, change water, dose, change water, dose, change water. And maybe it's the LDS, like the lethal, or it has an LDS or LDR, uh, lethal dose rate might be three times higher anyway. So like either one works, you mm-hmm. know, we could have, oh, maybe we just do a water change on day three. You know, like a lot of our meds that we have from manufacturers, they can stack up like ICX, you can do, you only do partial water changes on ICX out of fear that it might go lethal. Like you can dose without actually uh, changing water, but in some pHs and that kind of stuff, it reaches a toxicity level faster and be uh, faster than it would like become deactive. And so 
I think there's a lot of things that we can figure out if we choose to do it. And, you know, until I think social media, what do I want to call it, culture changes, in that right now, too many people get online just to fight instead of trying to actually accomplish things. And not that no one is, but if 10 people are in a room trying to get a conversation about how do we make something better and there's 80 people around them trying to stop that from happening, it makes it real hard and the 10 people that are trying just stop or they'd stop meeting and, and you mm-hmm. know, in a thing. Well, the, the sharing of academic uh, research, right? So somebody does some, some scientific research, they put their findings together, they publish it. And their peers challenge it. Their peers review it and they challenge it, right, to make sure that uh, those those findings are repeatable. Um, or you know, oh, I came up with with something different under your um, uh, under your methodology, and that's kind of that, like that's how you get towards a better understanding, right? Where mm-hmm. the concern with yeah, social media would be somebody would read it and then just instantly flame without ever doing the a bit of research on their own. They're not your peer. Sure. Yeah. You know, so like I, I've run into that quite a bit with like our quarantine trio of. X people say you're going to build a super bug, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, and the people are critiquing it, and I'm like, well, have you ever advised tens of thousands of customers through a retail store? Have you ever been in that situation? Do you know what happens if they don't treat? Do you see what happens, what starts running rampant in communities and stuff like that where, you know, for instance, if we were to bring in a bunch of guppies and they bring in camelinus redworms and we're selling them to everyone's homes, right? And so now we've spread camelinus redworm to a hundred different homes in our state and five of them were guppy breeders that bring them to a local club and sell on Craigslist and do all this. We've actually now passed along that to thousands of people mm-hmm. at that point. And so we can also spread disease really fast. And so which is the, the greater wrong there? Spreading disease even more so exponentially or possibly building it up where it would be um, resistant to something like that. And we've had conversations in private with manufacturers where like a certain drug we basically can make a disease immune to it because the FDA has already held enough drugs back that will solve it so even if we were to use a drug and it became resistant in the aquarium trade there's still 15 other variants that that's why the FDA hasn't allowed it so that if it ever was to become virulent and just like oh we can't kill it and it transcends to humans or mm-hmm. dogs or something like that that we have these other, let's say, antibiotics or antiparasite or whatever it's going to be to still combat that. Now, we never would want to intentionally know we're building a superbug, but at the same time, I don't think it's a good idea to be like, oh, that horrible disease, don't try and stop that at all. Like, that's also the wrong thing. In a perfect world, every hobbyist would have a microscope. We're doing fecal smears. We're doing lateral line scrapes. We're taking gill clippings. We're, you know, we're very advanced hobbyists, but even in a store, that doesn't make sense. Like the consumer isn't willing to pay enough money so that we take a sample and we dissect one cardinal tetra every time we get 300 in and see what did it have and then cure for that or treat for that, cure it and then sell it. All of a sudden a cardinal tetra is twice the price. They just go to our competitor. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of in a a cat and mouse game of like, well, we kind of know what the answer is, but until something was to force us to do it, and that might be a government thing or just like some kind of protection agency of like, you know, if there was a fine, if there was a $5 fine every time they could document that you sold a fish with ick out of a store, all of a sudden every store would just treat ick. Yeah. You know, like it would kind of go away. But right now, the way it's set up is, 
a store that sells a fish with ick, they actually make more money because then you have to come back and you buy ick medicine. So they're actually, we're incentivizing people to not sell healthy fish at the store level. And so that is its own problem in itself where as a store owner, you make more money if the fish goes out sick. You make more money if you help the customer less. And that is a bad situation to be in. And so, you know, if we can figure that out and we can, you know, help each other, that's what I try and do is I focus on, you know, if you like what we're doing, follow what we do. If you don't like what we're doing, don't. You know, that's, there's so many people that will follow our advice or not. You know, maybe they have 12 arowanas in a five gallon tank, whatever. That's, you know, I focus on the people that want to uh, interact with us and like what we're doing. And, you know, a lot of people are just looking for help and they don't know where to go. And sometimes teaching them how to use some medicines, even in like the shotgun approach, like we would with animals, a lot of times, you know, once a dog or a cat goes to the pound, there's shots and stuff they have to get before they can ever come back out, you know, and that's that shotgun approach because we've learned it is better to attack it that way than it is to treat parvo as it spreads around the nation. You Mm -hmm. know, it's easier to go. Let's, one of the big epicenters is these shelters and that kind of stuff. And the epicenters are wholesalers and fish stores and stuff like that. We know where the congregations of fish are. That's the place to try and stop it, unfortunately if wholesalers and fish stores aren't going to do it. And that, for the most part, is wholesalers that cut corners, chain stores that cut manpower or meds, you know, or the government. Sometimes the med that cured that goes away and we're still searching for what will get rid of it. One of that, one of the meds that got axed by the FDA was um, clout. And clout was really good for flukes and, and stuff like that. And so it's been kind of left a void of, well, what is the best medicine to treat that that's the least invasive on the fish that's not that medicine we've all been using for 20 years? And, you know, the answer is I don't really have a good one. You know, I'm still trying stuff out, but, you know, there's these voids that are left sometimes, and so hopefully someone speaks up and goes, you know what, this works really good. Like, Prozipro will work a little bit. Um, We use, you know, Dimalin, but it's only made in crazy high concentrations. So I think it's like one-tenth of a milliliter treats 500 gallons of water. Wow. And so we <laughs> dilute it even... down an insane wow. amount to be able to like, well, how would I treat a 20-gallon tank? You, you know, and so then it becomes very dangerous in the hands of a hobbyist that, oh, I thought it was one milliliter. And now you just dose for, you know, 500,000 gallons or whatever that, you know, math is going to be. And so that... It's like, oh, if that was the working thing, we just have to get a chemical company that can cut that down and make it in a safe, usable package for a hobbyist. But the reality is that chemical company goes, oh, if you're not using it for cattle and all that, we will never sell enough. We don't actually make any money. And that's what we run into all the time with companies when we're talking about meds. And they're like, honestly, there's not enough money in it. Mm-hmm. There's not enough money in medicines for the amount of permits you have to have to be dealing in these, you know, quote unquote, toxic chemicals or at least you know, whether they're toxic or not, they're a controlled substance a lot of times, like this is a drug. And so if you, you know, like methylene blue kind of went away and if no one wants to make it because the sales are so low and we're just going to lose it as hobbyists, you know, it's like, oh, we use it to dye jeans and stuff like that. But methylene blue as as a actual product for fish is just drying up. I think cordon might be the only one still making it. That being said, they might not even be making it. It might be the reserves of what they've made. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they've re, re-upped on their permits to continue making it. And like I know Fritz stopped and, uh, you know, there was another company, I can't remember off the top of my head, that stopped also. But as options dry up, 
that makes it harder on us. And plenty of people that listen to this podcast from other countries already know what do you do when you can't get these medicines? It only makes the job harder. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I want to go back to the the kind of the home researcher aspect of this and, and what sent us down this tangent. Um, but, you know, the microscope. You brought up not many aquarists are, you know, dissecting fish and looking under a microscope. And that, mm-hmm. that's actually been a piece of equipment that I've thought about. You know, I've, I've had deaths in my fish room. You know, it's unfortunate. I've had a tremendous number of breeding successes in my fish room, but I've also had some deaths. And it's... You know, why did those why did those those seemingly healthy guppies in that, you know, secluded ten gallon tank without a shared water system that's on auto water change, why did two of those guppies just die? You know, I got that message from my wife a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. That's real strange. That's a super healthy tank. I don't know what's going on there. Um, but yeah, I mean I just got into a uh, another nerdy side hobby, but maybe some of my Christmas ask will be, you know, Randy needs to get himself a microscope for his fish room mm-hmm. um, and actually start looking in and seeing what I'm doing. And uh, one of the GSAS members, Steve Ward. You know, I'm pretty sure that guy's probably got 10 microscopes at his house because he's very much into the uh, disease parasitology. And I think he actually wants people in the club to give him recently yes. deceased fish. I, I don't think he I've will seen... analyze them. Yeah. 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 And he, he's and given he, some talks. Yeah. And he's stuff. built a talk around that. But um, really encouraging home hobbyists to, to become home researchers and, you know, um, see what they can come up with and hopefully fill that void that maybe the scientific community that's more focused on the environmental the immediate environmental impacts maybe there's something that we can do to you know like you said help fill that void and you know maybe something even even if one or two great developments comes uh, out of the entire united states hobbies community that's one or two developments that you know weren't there Right, like it's all where money is. Like the reason we developed a quarantine trio is because we needed to keep fish alive. Like the money is why we did it. Like it's a good thing to give away for free now, like as in telling everyone about it. But we needed to be able to land fish from all around the world with different diseases, different strains of diseases, and be able to knock it out in a timely manner so that we could get these fish healthy and sell them. And so, you know, when it comes down to these people being paid to do things. It's whatever kind of leads back to money. Like, are we proving a point to save the Amazon or not? Or Not that no one's doing any pro bono work, but the majority of work that does get done is paid work. And it might be towards how do we save the salmon so that I'm not losing money in the salmon farm? How do I save? And when you talk to someone like Dr. Tim Miller Morgan, who you know, I wish I could hang out with all the time, but as he gets flown around the world to diagnose a disease in this catfish farm that we'd be eating the catfish, the money there, we're talking millions and millions of dollars is dying. And then there's a shortage of food and that kind of stuff. And so someone with a great mind like that, their time is being spent, you know, maybe on a more noble purpose of like saving food for humans and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff when they could spend that same time figuring out. And I do love that about him is that he does teach class on like a whole program on ornamental fish. That's Mm -hmm. what he does. Or I think it's, uh, Oregon State University and so he's where I learn a lot of things about how certain continents just don't even have that disease because the water structure is not right for it or the temperature is too hot or it just doesn't really exist mm-hmm. there but this thing is crazy bad and it does and we find you know we found that even in Washington we have the cascade crud which is this horrible a disease that will spread between your koi that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. It's just kind of in Washington. And kind of good that we've quarantined and haven't really sent it out. Um, not that it probably has never made it anywhere else, but it kind of like died off in people's ponds and that kind of stuff. And so just learning about all of that is 
made me a better Aquarius just by, you know, having more of an understanding of, like, maybe I don't know it all, maybe, you know, because on the simplest plant form ever, everyone knows that <clears throat> ick can be treated with heat and salt. But if that was the case, ick wouldn't exist. Every wholesaler would just run at 85 degrees with this amount of salt, and ick would never surface again. And it's when you actually learn... There's lots of different strains of ick. There are strains of ick that are immune to the heat. There are salts, there are ick that are immune to salt. There's all these things. And that's why it's a complex problem because if it wasn't that way, it just wouldn't exist. And, you know, part of it is... Well, I think, I think some of that is that superficial information that is out there, though. So that social media is a double-edged sword of mm -hmm. if we looked at most ick videos online, they're not going to dive in and talk about multiple strains of ick. Mm -hmm. They're just going to use you know, the prevailing knowledge about ick. They're mm -hmm. gonna package it up in their style and they're gonna make a video for content. Yep. And so it's gonna it's gonna cover maybe sixty percent of the subject, but it's gonna leave this other forty percent undiscussed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing, is even in my own store, when I worked for a store, like we knew how to treat ick and when you kind of when you I've taken classes with him and when you are paying to learn and you find out, you're like, oh my gosh, this is actually a much bigger thing than I ever knew. That makes sense why sometimes you're like, oh, this treatment worked, it worked, it worked, and then no matter what I did, it wouldn't work. It's because like, oh, you ran into what we classified as the same thing is actually something different now. Has, has Tim Miller, has he produced an actual academic book for, his, for that course? I don't know if he's produced a book, but I do know he's gonna, got I'm a video series and they have a YouTube channel. I've, I've oh, that's awesome. watched through it. Um, if I can remember, I, I want to I want to share that. Yeah, I know he's got a Facebook group and everything, or not a group, but a page. And uh, yeah, but I, you know, it this would have been like probably ten years ago now, where I kind of went down the nerd rabbit hole of just like I took it upon myself of like what more can I learn? This was before I was on YouTube. Of at that point, I'm just guiding local people that come to me for knowledge because I work at a store. How can I make myself better? How can I save the store money? How can I do better? And just as you learn, there's so many diseases. Like, I bet you if we, it'd be a good experiment to ask, uh, like, 100 hobbyists, name every fish disease you can name. And I bet you most people can't name more than, like, five, mm. honestly. And there's, there's, when you get a real textbook of fish diseases, you're like, yeah. there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And most people will be like, okay, fin rot, ick, velvet, like, and then you'd be like, a fungusy thing? Like, like a, like a Popeye? Kind of, or, yeah, Popeye, uh, like, okay, that's just like a general bacterial uh, infection, like, oh, internal tapeworms, like, mm, but what, what are they called? Camelinus, like, camelinus yeah, worm. Camelinus yeah. worm, like, you might get five or six, and we're literally, there's hundreds and yeah. hundreds and hundreds. You know, maybe Costia, that's a real common one that most people have never heard that word before. Never heard of that one. And, uh, you know, so, if we know there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and we pretty much only have medicines on the market to attack 10 of them, and maybe the knowledge online commonly, like my joke I always give is like, you can see a fish where it's like someone's bit it in half and then someone's like, does my fish have ick? Like that's almost like a the stereotypical <laughs> meme because like anything that's wrong with a fish defaults to ick is like, oh, does my fish have ick? Well, like Neon Tetra, it's the Neon Tetra disease, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the moment your Neon Tetra starts doing anything weird, oh, it's got Neon Tetra disease. And there is a Neon Tetra disease and it's not only to Neon Tetras, it's that what's in the hobby and we give it suitable conditions that typically it's only affecting that fish. Mm -hmm. But there are some other tetras it will affect, but we don't, maybe we don't collect them and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And so, you know, that's like a parasite that lives under 
the skin and typically will show present itself in like a bubble and we end up losing the fish and the reality is it's not that you couldn't be cured it's that the meds that we have don't penetrate the tissue very well and so as that parasite lives under the tissue we're not really able to get meds to it and it's straight up just cheaper to buy more neon tetras than it is to you know fight that and so i think that's and and the store level like i don't know how to cure it so that's the first thing i honestly don't know but even if a store did, it's kind of in their best interest to not tell someone because then you'll buy more Tetras. So it's, you know, if it slowly wipes them all out and you'll buy 30 more, that makes them money where if you sell them a $10 medicine, mm-hmm. not so much. But that is a, that's a very, you know, potentially pricey gamut because that die off of Neon Tetras could just get them out of the hobby altogether. Could also go, oh, I keep African cichlids now. Like yeah. I'm sure, well, you know, part of it is, you know, they will make a change. They'll either buy more neons, they'll switch fish, they'll do something. They might get out of the hobby. Maybe that, you know, maybe that's 25% of all people. But at the same time, when you have people working with medicines, there's the same chance they kill all their fish, right? So mm-hmm. like, oh, by trying to save my neon tetra, I killed everything. Oh, my, my catfish was super sensitive to it. And, you know, I, I, I bring this up a lot that anytime you go get a drug from the pharmacy, they're literally looking for what drug interactions can go on. Like, could this be bad for you as a person? I know you have a heart condition or whatever it's going to be. And you've got like a, a, you know, someone trained to try and help you with that. It's more than just putting the pills in a capsule. Yeah, whereas a hobbyist, for the most part, it's like, this thing says treats cancer. I will buy that and put it in my tank. Okay, that didn't fix it. I'm going to buy this one that says it does that. And then you realize like, oh, those are actually toxic and killed everything. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, that will get just as many people out of the hobby. Mm-hmm. And there's been, you know, Tetra products and stuff like that, like Lifeguard and stuff. It'll it'll kill dang near every parasite and bacteria and stuff like that. It'll kill every dang near every fish, too. You know, it's just on the shelf at Walmart. Yeah. And they actually pulled it because it was doing so much damage to their brand of like, oh, all medicines from Tetra kill fish and blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I bet to your, you know, your same challenge of ask how many hobbyists, well, ask hobbyists how many diseases they can name. I bet if you... Uh, took somebody to a pet store or a fish store that carried a, a fairly significant um, number of different brands and different meds. Like with with Aquarium Co-op, we're pretty focused in on the meds that we sell, mm-hmm. right? Um, where if you go into some of the more traditional fish stores that kind of carry everything under the sun, mm-hmm. if you handed a picture of a diseased fish to an aquarist and said, pick out the right medicine, mm-hmm pick out one of the four right medicines of this wall of 50, yep. you know, the, the boxes will sometimes try to help you out with descriptions and box art, but you know, the box for a bacteria infection could look the same as the box for an external parasite, you know, as far as how they describe it in that two word little blurb. Well, I think a great example would be realize that everything a human can get pretty much a fish can get. Like, you know, organs can fail, bacterial infections, fungal infections, all these things, right? Go to your average pharmacy, you walk into a Rite Aid, and you just walk in, and there's an aisle of just like, there might be 1,200 different medications there. Not even, pres- like, take a prescription, just on that shelf. And then you go like, oh, this one treats this type of bacteria, this one only treats a foot fungus, this one only treats this, and you're going based on what the box says. Mm -hmm. You literally go like, oh, this is gonna do it. The same thing we're doing in the hobby. And that's where, you know, we're really regulating something for a human, right? If a human dies, that's horrible. Like, oh, a fish dies. So there's a, it's a lot more wild west. And we're trying, we tried to boil it down to like, your accuracy of pulling something off the shelf 
is like an 80% chance it's going to work. And most stores, you know, will carry everything because they don't want someone to leave and go buy online. Like you didn't carry, you know, there's like, I, I always think in my mind, like one of the medicines I don't carry is it's like an Ickbegon or something. And it looks like a fire extinguisher. I don't know why, you know, but it, or maybe it's like an Ick extinguish, I think is maybe what it's called. You know, but it's like a gimmicky it, thing. Extinguish. Yeah, it's like a gimmicky thing, but you know, like on a shelf at a chain store, like maybe that's the number one. So, oh, like this one's legit, you know, and it just didn't work that well. And so, I think there, even just with that, there's so much to learn, and we only know a, f- a handful. That's the thing is, even as a, even I bet you most of my employees know a, a handful and a half. Like your average well-seasoned fish store employee might be able to name 10 or 12 diseases and a guy like me might be able to name 15 maybe yet there's hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds and maybe dr tim morgan can name 82 mm-hmm. you know and he's like oh man kind of top of his field mm-hmm. you know and so that's where it gets really difficult and that's why a microscope does help you don't have to know it other than this thing looks like this now, can I cross-reference in this book and find anything that looks like that? Well, and most fish clubs, too, have some type of uh, inter-member communication via a, you know, an online or a, an email server or they have a Facebook group or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, be open to sharing. Like, you know, if I get this microscope and the next time I have a fish die, I'll do the scrapings and uh, maybe I get one where I can actually take an image somehow of the slide and share that with the group. Like, hey, guys. Um, not really here to get flamed, but you know, here's what I saw under the microscope of a guppy that died. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you, what do you think? Hey, Steve Ward, second time dropping his name in this podcast. He doesn't even listen to this, but hey, Steve, we love you. You know, what do you, what do you think this is? And try and share that knowledge. You know, and see and see if we can crowdsource it. And somebody's like, oh yeah, hey, I know what that is. Or I- maybe you spark them, and they want to start microscoping. And pretty soon, you got three people, and you're actually learning the diseases, and you're helping your other fellow hobbyists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, if, if the regions tend to keep kinds of the same fish, like we're mm-hmm. not exactly known for African cichlids in Seattle, yep. um, but, you know, if we are for live bears and, you know, a lot of us have Bristlenose pachlosimus or whatever, you know, whatever it is that works well with planted tanks, you know, we can share some of that information and, um, you know, start throwing some things under slides and seeing seeing what it is that we see, if, if anything at all. I don't know. Like, just that, that spark of, of curiosity is actually... I don't want anything in my fish room to die anytime soon, but you know, getting that microscope and being able to see what exactly I might be able to mm-hmm. to take away from that, yeah, yeah, it's a good trip. Got one more day left, and uh, I think the takeaway from this trip will be for me visiting the discus fish farm. Like mm-hmm. that, that video is going to be cool. It's going to blow people's minds on, you know, like I'll leave this podcast at the end here with like the teaser of your mind will be blown with the actual water changes they're doing and stuff and the sheer amount of discus they produce and it's again this is the perfect example of the internet says this here's someone that's supporting 25 employees making a living doing the opposite Mm -hmm. 100,000 some odd discus roughly yeah exactly like it's the polar opposite of what the internet says is the correct thing and it's like well here's the practitioner actually doing it Mm -hmm. you know and so is the internet right or is the person that literally is doing it right Mm mm-hmm you know, I, w- I won't say it's hard to say because I know the answer, but, you know, I, I, I believe the person, you know, if the Internet collectively was doing the same thing and they thought the opposite, but, you know, it, it at least gives you a reference point, I think. Mm-hmm. All right, Corey McElroy, it's always a pleasure. Yes, quattro. Right. Till next time. Hmm.